Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, again from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, where yesterday it snowed for the first time this season, and it was good to see a little dusting. I don't know, Cara, if it uh, snowed up your way or whether or not you're still having wonderful weather. Of course it snowed up here. My kids were sledding in the backyard this weekend. I mean, it's not much of a place for sledding, but... Yeah, we had we had a nice nor'easter. I mean, you think you're a big deal down there in Virginia, but we're going to beat you. In the yeah, snow you get carpet. real snow up there. Yeah, we do, my friend. I, I'm trying to convince my family. Um, we, you know, we we like to ski. Um, we like to ski in Canada, which we obviously will not be able to do for any number of reasons this year. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to convince the rest of my family to take up cross country skiing, which, being a Michigander, you know. Uh, if you go far enough north, that's a very preferred mode of transportation. But they're they're not backing me up. My husband thinks it sounds like too much hard work, Gerard. Got it. Well, as usual, we've got time to talk about articles we've read. And um, the one that uh, really stuck out with me was the passing of Dr. Walter Williams. Mm-hmm. And it's an article in the Wall Street Journal written by Donald Bordeaux. It was also a really good article also earlier written by Thomas Sowell. Um, in an era where we talk about Black Lives Matter and some of that has evolved into Black Minds Matter, uh, Walter Williams is someone in the pantheon of Black intellectual history who most Black people know little about. Uh, part of it is the fact that he was a professor of economics. And if you look at research, you know, I think 80 percent of the African-Americans who have a doctorate, it's in education. And if you look at the remaining disciplines, Fewer have a Ph.D. in economics than other subjects. So that's one aspect. But I think the real issue is the fact that he was a libertarian. Now, libertarians and Republicans may share certain ideological ideas, but black Republicans and black libertarians know there's a difference. And so Walter Williams was an early um, out a libertarian who believed that the state had a role to play, but maybe not as much in his groundbreaking book, uh, The State Against Blacks, which was published in 1982, really solidified within the libertarian and conservative movement his credentials as a thinker, not solely on race, but how the government has, in fact, been discriminatory through policies that they believe were supposed to help uh, black people and other minorities. And so he spent 40 years um, with the economic department at George Mason University, definitely one of the top departments in the country as relates to economics. And he was not only a good scholar, but many people who I know who took him as a professor said he was a really good teacher who was able to take sometimes arcane information about econometrics and give you real world examples of how it makes sense in the real world. So his passage is a loss for the academy. Uh, He's someone I think that as we're looking again to look at black lives that matter in different ways, he's someone that we should look to. I did read States Against Blacks uh, many years ago and that was my first introduction. So just wanted to share that news and to say that, you know, he grew up poor in Philadelphia and moved to California and earned his PhD in economics from UCLA in 1972, when it was a very hot time uh, in California politics at that time. But that's my story. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a loss for sure, and it's really really important work. And I love the fact, Gerard, that in your comments you highlight, you know, that um, I think a lot of people would be very surprised about um, about the fact that. Um, 
what what he writes about that that well-intentioned programs have not always had the results that people think that they have and really really digging into that and what that means you know to connect it to today to the black lives matter movement and and of course to the black minds matter movement which you've been doing a lot of great speaking on on various panels as i've seen also a shout out to our friends at afc who've been doing a really important work in that vein i think um my story of the week, Gerard, is one that, um, you know, so interestingly enough, I'll share with you that I've been helping some, I used to do teacher training, as I think you know, in one of my other lives. And, um, and one of the things that I was always charged with was explaining not only education policy 101, um, you know, whatever that means, but also school finance, which is, you know, as you say, arcane, econometrics, like school finance is this area that I think so many people like just prefer not to even think about (laughs) other than, other than to say like, just give us more money. Right. And it's, it's so very important. And we know that teacher leaders and school leaders are not given the tools they need to be successful in this area in most programs. Um, But, you know, they might be having to become more successful. I think the pressure's on, and, and let me tell you why there's an article out in the 74 entitled new requirement to publish per pupil spending data could help schools direct funding to the neediest students. But even in the face of budget cuts, state implementation lags. So really what this article is pointing to is that, you know, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, um, which became law in 2015, for the first time required states to be transparent about per student funding on their school report cards. So we're used to hearing about statewide averages or district-wide averages, but the fact of the matter is, is that the people who study this know that those don't really tell you much. That you really need to look at like what's going on in an individual school and where the money's going. I mean, economists will almost to a T, I, I haven't met one yet that doesn't say like, it's yes, money matters, but more than more money mattering, it's where the money goes and how the money is spent. So this was an attempt to like, really make things understandable, digestible, and transparent for parents, for communities, and for others. And, you know, one of the things we know, which I always try to explain to my school leaders is people make great assumptions about, oh, it's the federal government's fault. It's the state government's fault. Well, let me tell you something. It's usually at the local level where things Mm -hmm. get really, really confusing when it comes to everything from, you know, raising property taxes and, and, and who, who spends what, to how those funds are spent, not only funds, but how resources like Hello Teachers are allocated within a district and between schools. And we all know full well that you can have one school across town that's got experienced, super high-performing teachers and another school in the exact same district where every teacher has one year of experience under his or her belt, right? And that's not to say that new teachers can't be good, but we do know that certain things make a difference. So the, the findings of this um, a report in the 74, you know, what it really discusses is the fact that some folks are really being transparent, meaning some states um, are actually publishing this data, but others are, are, are lagging behind. So implementation lags is in the headline there. Why is this important? This is important, especially because, listen, we know that budget cuts are looming. We know that they're coming. So, that you know, it was, we've known since March that things were going to be bad. I don't think schools have felt nearly the pain this year that they will feel the next fiscal year. And that's a really big deal because if you are not transparent with your community or if indeed if you as a school or a district don't know yourself where the money really goes and if you don't account for it, how can you protect 
the most vulnerable students or the programs that are the most effective or the things that you need most in an era of impending budget cuts. And that's really, really huge. I'd like to give a shout out to a friend of mine and a colleague, his name is Matthew Joseph, who does phenomenal work in this area. And what he's been just obsessed with and working on very diligently since um, since we all, you know, sort of hunkered down and went into our homes is this idea that we should, that schools and districts should have a dashboard for like understanding um, if budget cuts have to happen, what are the things that you need to save? And how do you know that those are the things that you need to save? Well, if you're not collecting the data, if you're not transparent about it, you're going to probably cut things that are going to have, um, you know, really detrimental consequences. So highly recommend this article. Um, it's, it's got a picture of Marguerite Rosa on the front here. And she just, as you know, Gerard writes so fantastically and cogently about all things related to school finance. So I think this one is really worth a read. Um, I'm definitely a fan yeah. of her work. Yeah, I know. We need to have her on. We need to give her a call. We're going to, we're going to yes. hop on. Okay. Yes. Ne- next one. We're working on that listeners. So, um, Marguerite, if you're listening, we'll, we'll send you an email. Um, Coming up, Gerard, we've got, we're going to talk about Horace Mann. We are going to talk about the common school. Usually when we talk about such things on the learning curve, it's in relation to the Espinoza case and it's in relation to how, you know, the common school, some of the negative impacts of the common school or what uh, Charlie Glenn, everybody's, um, the great Dr. Glenn called the myth of the common school. Mm-hmm. We often talk about how the common school really left a lot of folks out, but our next speaker is going to talk to us about some other aspects of, of Horace Mann, about the founding of, of American schools, uh, the early founding um, and the spread of the common school in the U.S. So we will be talking right after this to Professor Daniel Walker Howe. Welcome back, Learning Curve listeners. Today, we're here with Daniel Walker Howe. He's the Rhodes Professor of American History Emeritus at Oxford University in England and Professor of History Emeritus at the University of California, Los Angeles. He won the 2008 Pulitzer for History for the What God Hath Wrought, The Transformation of America, 1815 to 1848. He also wrote Making the American Self, Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln and the Political Culture of the American Whigs. Howe graduated magna cum laude in American history and literature from Harvard College and received his PhD in history at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Howe, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you for having me. Our listeners are probably going to be very particularly interested in Horace Mann. So not only a major figure here where I am in Massachusetts, but just in early American history, generally speaking, and certainly with regard to the establishment of of the first of the common schools, we would call it. Um, oh, yeah. Can you talk to us about? He was also a prominent abol- abolitionist, which I, which I think is a very important yeah, tie-in yeah. too. Could you talk yeah. to us more specifically about Horace Mann and his vision of schooling as a as as a means to achieving political equality? Sure, uh, Horace Mann, who lived from 1796 until 1859 was the first secretary of the Massachusetts State Board of Education. And Massachusetts and the New England states in general uh, had the best educational systems of any states uh, in this country at that time. Uh, And... uh, 
uh, uh, Horace Mann was determined to make uh, the Massachusetts school system even better. But the reason why the New England states had the best uh, educational systems is that they were settled back in the 17th century by Puritans. Now, we today usually remember the Puritans as, uh, well, bad, because we remember that they were intolerant and uh, persecuted people of other religions, and we remember that they believed in witchcraft and punished people that they uh, uh, accused of witchcraft and so forth. But what we are less likely to remember is that in some ways the Puritans were very good people whom uh, we should uh, remember uh, for the wonderful educational systems that they established. The reason why they had the best schools is that the Puritans believed very strongly that every Christian believer needed to read the Bible on their own. And this meant, of course, that women needed to read the Bible as well as men. And so girls needed to learn how to read as well as boys. Uh, and indeed, these Puritans established the best uh, systems of education. And uh, practically all of the adults in the New England states, if they were white anyway, uh, were able to uh, read. So, uh, Horace Mann uh, wanted to improve the uh, schools in Massachusetts even more, and he encouraged his state to establish teacher training colleges so that um, uh, the uh, teaching profession could be created and have its own system of higher education. And he encouraged uh, the state and other states that came to imitate his own uh, he encouraged them uh, to hire women. Frankly, he encouraged them to hire women because women were cheaper to hire. Uh, you didn't have to pay them as much. But from the point of view of uh, women, this was still progress uh, because it meant that there was one edu one. Uh, profession established uh, that was open to women and that women were encouraged to pursue. Before this time, school teaching had generally been only a part-time job and men had been 
the teachers. Uh, Horace Mann was able to persuade his own state and later other states as well to hire women as school teachers uh, uh, because they were less expensive than men. So uh, the teacher training colleges provided women with the first profession that was open to them. Uh, well, uh, Horace Mann uh, went on to become a member of the United States House of Representatives, where he led the fight against slavery. And finally, he became uh, the president of Antioch College in Ohio. And that college is very noteworthy because it admitted students of both genders, both boys and girls, or men and women, could go to Antioch College, and people of all races could be students there too. So Horace Mann uh, is a pioneer in education regardless of, uh, of race or gender. You make some really good points about Horace Mann and his important work in New England. And you've also touched on the fact that, you know, less than 98%, uh, no one, you know, really no state in New England had less than 98% adult literacy. Very different yeah. than the South and the Midwest and yeah. the emergent West. Talk to us about that. Okay. Well, this was originally, thanks to the Puritan emphasis on uh, people being able to read the Bible. But as time went by, a second reason for wanting uh, public education also appeared, and that was the desire to educate voters. Of course, uh, in those days, uh, only men could vote, and in most states, only white men. In, in many states, uh, black people were often enslaved. So, um, the um, high rates of literacy uh, originally derived from religious motives, but they came to embrace political motives as well. And uh, indeed, uh, the states where people descended from the Puritans lived, which came to include more than just New England, but also other states like Ohio and Wisconsin. Uh, the states where Yankees lived, the word Yankees uh, originally meant uh, people who were descended from the Puritans. 
nowadays, we kind of think of Yankees as being uh, Americans in general, but originally it was specifically people descended from the Puritans. Anyway, the states with Yankee populations tended to have the best educational systems because those people became used to it. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was a great pioneer for expanding the purpose of education to include educating a free uh, voting public. Uh, and indeed, in the 19th century, the United States tended to have better uh, educational systems and more democratic uh, politics than Europe did. Uh, of course, uh, only for white people. So speaking of Thomas Jefferson, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and so know a great deal about his academical village. Yeah, you would. In the early years of the Republic, uh, you had some states who actually included an education or learning clause uh, in the state constitution. Uh, we know yeah. you also are a big admirer of yeah. John Adams and, of course, the role he played in the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution. But the U.S. Yeah. Constitution, of course, was silent. Talk to us about federalism and what what we today we'd call states' rights and how that played into the movement or creating obstacles for public education? Well, okay. Uh, lots, uh, generally speaking, education was uh, assumed to be a state or local responsibility rather than a responsibility of the federal government. And uh, in the early 19th century, which is what we've been talking about, uh, the two major political parties were the Democrats and the Whigs. Uh, uh, the Whig Party, that's W-H-I-G, the Whig Party, it took its name from a, an English political party, uh, which was... Uh, uh, people who wanted to limit the power of the king. Uh, and the Whig Party in the United States got its name because they were opposed to uh, President Andrew Jackson, whom they accused of being like uh, a British king. So the uh, Whig Party wanted the state to control uh, public education, and the Democratic Party wanted it to be left to local authorities. The Democrats' primary goal was to make education as cheap as possible so that taxes would be low. The Whig Party was more willing to spend money on education, and uh, so they liked to have the states be responsible uh, for it. Um, and uh, 
Whig uh, politicians, uh, including uh, John Quincy Adams, the son of the John Adams, whom you mentioned, uh, was he was a very devoted supporter of uh, public education. In those days, by the way, uh, the expression was usually not uh, public education, but common education, because it was be common to all of the citizens. Only a few states, uh, including Massachusetts, uh, provided uh, for the education of black uh, youngsters. But uh, Horace Mann strongly supported education even for black uh, children. And uh, an interesting, uh, surprising point, which I will point out to show how times change, uh, in uh, Massachusetts, when they established schools for black children, common schools, uh, they segregated them so that black children went to separate schools. And the black community wanted uh, the schools to be segregated. And they had two reasons why they wanted it. One was they were worried that if the black children went to schools with white children, the white children would be in the majority, and they were afraid that the white children would bully the black children, as they probably would have. Um, but they couldn't do that if the schools were segregated. The other reason why the black community wanted the schools to be segregated in Massachusetts was because that would create jobs for black teachers uh, to teach them. So um, they did have schools in Massachusetts and Horace Mann and his wife uh, strongly supported uh, for black uh, children. And it's an interesting fact that um, there was a very promising uh, black uh, uh, woman uh, who was eager to teach in the black schools. Her name was Chloe Lee, and uh, she was admitted to the normal school, uh, uh, which is what they call the teacher training colleges. Uh, but she couldn't find anybody who was willing to offer her room and board while she was going to uh, the normal school and Horace Mann and his wife took her into their home and 
she roomed and boarded with them. And that, I offer that as an example of the way they were more eager than most white people to uh, have black uh, teachers and uh, black students. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I think it's certainly uh, an excellent lesson in in sort of how we got to a place where, you know, states really control education in this country. And also with particular regard to um, to desegregation, especially in the um, 1960s and 70s, the, the consequences yeah. of which were that we lost um, more than a generation, certainly, of excellent black school leaders and black school teachers um, and and now we see a society as I again as I sit here in Massachusetts with schools that are deeply segregated, but also I think very important to point out a lot of high performing schools, uh, especially in Boston, that serve a majority black students and that parents have chosen uh, that want their children in those schools for for any number of reasons, um, and and certainly just an interesting and an important conversation around um, around how these themes have have been drawn throughout uh, American history and persist today and um, and hopefully how we're flipping some of these narratives um, on their head. But Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a really enjoyable and enlightening conversation. And um, we're always happy to talk about, about Horace Mann and the common school. Um, but perhaps at another show, we can have you talk about some of the some of the legacy um, with regard to the effects of the common school on pushing out um, folks of of minority faiths, so for example, Catholic Catholics and 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 others. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have time for those conversations today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so very much, and we wish you um, good health during this time and good luck. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. We hope. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, there are a lot of things that we didn't get to talk about, uh, including uh, schooling for Catholic children. Uh, so uh, we'll look forward uh, maybe to another interview sometime. Fantastic. Take good care of yourselves. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. So here is my tweet of the week, and it's from Netflix and Strong Black Lead at Strong Black Lead. And they're giving an exclusive first look to Viola Davis as Ma Rainey in, quote, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, end of quote. Viola completely embodies the aptly named Mother of the Blues in this scene. And it's worth taking a look at if you are a jazz or blues aficionado like uh, Jamie Gass, who is affiliated with our program, <laughs> you will really like taking a look at the clip. And in an era, again, where we're talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, we often forget that Black women's lives matter. And what she had to go through as a entertainer and as an artist uh, and as a woman on top of being black at a time when it was still a lot of segregation, but it was still pro male. Uh, glad to see Viola play this role. She is not only a very uh, talented actress, but she really embodies every person 
that she plays. And so I will uh, look forward to seeing everything uh, full. Yeah. I mean, anything with Viola Davis and especially in, in this role, because she's a barrier breaker herself. Right. I mean, Hollywood is certainly a place that um, still tough for women and boys mm-hmm. tougher for black women than others. And forget it if you're my age, but um, you know, there are <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, that's what I hear. Not no comment. No comment. My door. Yeah. Yeah. You hold that my friend, but, um, but no, I will absolutely be checking that out because she is just, I mean, she's genius. She's a phenomenal actor. All right. So I get to close this Archer out and we, I'm, I'm very excited for this next guest because he's um, somebody I consider a friend. I've had the pleasure of working with him a bit and in the past year or so, really great guy. We are going to be talking to um, the U S department of education's assistant secretary, Jim blue. And I think many of our listeners will recognize the name and I, I just know that Jim's got a lot of interesting stuff to share with us. It's going to be a great conversation. So really looking forward. And uh, Gerard, until then, you know, we'll, we'll be thinking about you with all your little snowflakes there as I dig out from, from a, a real snowstorm. But, um, I'll, but I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> Take care. Take care.